Amen. Well, I am glad to see you all survived winter. Uh, <laughs> outside of the cold weather that swept through around Christmas time, winter has been a breeze thus far. It finally caught up to us a bit uh, this past week, and many weren't able to worship with us in person last week because of the weather. Uh, and then later on in the week, uh, local schools had a snow day, and at least I know of Northwestern had a two-hour delay as well. I'm not sure about the other local schools. Uh, but the winter weather, it does not care what sort of roots you have. No matter if you have southern roots or northern roots, the snow falls on all of us the same. I know some of you guys wish that weren't the case. Uh, the weather shows no favoritism, though. I'm sorry. But I'm happy to tell you that God works the same way. God shows no partiality to any particular group. He doesn't show favoritism to uh, one people group or one race over a separate race or a separate uh, people group. And that's really going to be a, a big uh, key to uh, our piece of scripture here this morning that we're going to cover today as we are continuing our series on the book of Romans. We're going verse by verse throughout the book of Romans. We're probably going to have to split it up into uh, two different sections as it's a rather lengthy book uh, to try and cover. Uh, all in one series without any breaks. If we were to go throughout, through the whole series without any breaks, you guys would probably get uh, tired of hearing me uh, talk about Romans by the end of it. So we'll split it up somewhere in the middle uh, and so that we can get a fresh perspective and, and talk about uh, varying topics as well. Uh, but to recap, to, to remind ourselves what uh, this series is all about, uh, Paul wrote this letter, uh, the letter of Romans to the church at Rome. And it's a church that consists of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And that tidbit of information is extremely important for today's discussion. And so Paul, he wanted to visit Rome to preach the gospel uh, message to them, for he had never uh, made his way over to Rome yet at that point in time in writing this letter. We later find out that he did eventually find his way, found his way to Rome in chains as a prisoner. Uh, before then, he, he wanted to visit uh, Rome to preach the gospel to them. However, he wasn't able to at that moment. Uh, and so instead he writes a letter to them. And in this letter, he, he outlines it and he goes through a process presenting the gospel message to them. He lays out the foundation of our faith. And so throughout this letter, this letter that's 16 uh, chapters, it's, it's a pretty long letter, uh, especially when we think of like writing a letter, a letter to our loved ones today. Not many people really do that anymore, whether we just call them or email them or text them. But if you imagine a letter, you may think of a page or two. Here, Paul, he's writing a pretty lengthy letter uh, to the Christians over at the church in Rome. And throughout this letter, he's building a large case for the gospel. And so we are just barely getting started into this presentation of this gospel message that Paul presents to the church at Rome. Last week, as we did the second half of chapter one, we saw the depravity of mankind during uh, the time that Paul wrote this letter. As, and Paul went on to explain that nobody has any excuse not to know God. As God reveals himself to everybody in a number of different ways. Paul uses the example of nature. God reveals himself to us through nature. Uh, we have uh, the blinds open this morning as we were without uh, lights in here for a little while. We needed the lights in here. But if we were to take a minute and look outside these windows here and see the beautiful creation that God uh, formed in the beginning, we see that, wow, there, you, you, cannot, you cannot convince me that happened by chance or by mistake. There must be an intelligent being behind all this. And so God reveals himself to us through nature. 
And then so as we continue along in chapter 2, that's where we'll be spending all of our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul is really, he's going to be making one big claim throughout the entire chapter. We're going to see uh, what that claim is as we read through this chunk of scripture. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to read the entire chapter uh, this morning. I think it will better serve us uh, as far as uh, this passage to read it in big chunks rather than little chunks and di dissecting each verse separately. So we're going to uh, kind of cru uh, cruise through this chapter here, Romans uh, chapter 2. And we, we most likely won't go at the same pace uh, throughout the rest of the series. But, but again, Paul here is making one big claim here in chapter 2. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to both these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you pres presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and, and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so Paul here in this passage here, Paul states that we condemn ourselves when we judge others and practice the very same things that we are judging others for. And apparently there was a group of people who were judging others for particular actions, but they were doing the, the same exact things. It's very reminiscent. Some of you guys might, might be thinking of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when he instructs them to take the plank out of their own eye before they're able to take care of their brother and inspect uh, the, the speck in his eye. Uh, it's a very typical practice to judge someone for a particular sin, but in the, all in the same time, you are partaking of that particular action. So the same group of people were casting God's judgment on others. They thought that they could escape God's judgment. And this group of people, they, they were trying to take advantage of God's kindness as God deals kindly with others. They're trying to take advantage of his forbearance or, or his self-control that God doesn't just zap them right then and there when they can commit sin after sin after sin. He gives them a chance to repent from their sin. And this group of people, they, they were trying to take advantage of God's patience. As God's not slow. He's not slow to bring about his promises, but he's patient, hoping, willing that all of us come to, to repentance and all of us come to a saving knowledge, a saving faith of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so this group of people, they, they were taking God's kindness, his forbearance or, or self-control, and his patience as an invitation to sin. Instead, these qualities of God, they, they should motivate us to repent of our sin, but they're using these exact same qualities as motivation to commit sin. And in doing so, this group of people, they, they were storing up for themselves God's wrath. And so it's a very hypocritical, hypocritical group of people that Paul here is addressing. And so my question is, who is 
this group of people. Who is Paul addressing here when he's talking about this group of people that judges others and they're committing those same exact things? And again, note here, Paul doesn't say not to judge, but not to judge if you are going to go ahead and commit the same actions that they do. We talked about last week, we are called to hold our fellow brothers and sisters up in Christ and hold them accountable to Christ-like manners and Christ-like actions. But we should not judge others for actions that we ourselves partake in as well. So who is this group of people? We conduct with good reason that the group of people Paul is referring to here is the Jews. In the previous section in chapter 1, Paul was going into detail uh, describing the depravity uh, of the Gentile world, a world that was under condemnation. And the Jews, they, they certainly would have thoroughly agreed with Paul's account of the state of the Gentile world and how God has handed them over to their debased desires, their debased mind. And the, and the Jews, they, they would be soaking this all in. Yes, Paul, yes, Paul, yes, Paul, you're so right. We live in such an evil world that this Gentile world, it is so evil. But they never for a moment would have included themselves under the same sort of condemnation for they are Abraham's offspring. Justin Martyr, uh, one of the first uh, Christian apologists, as uh, the author of the book Dialogue with Trypho. Justin Martyr, uh, he, he has this discussion with a Jew named Trypho, and he's trying to prove the truths of Christianity to this Jew named Trypho. And Trypho, the Jew, said, quoted in this book, they who are, uh, or translating English, they who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. And so Trypho, this Jew, thought that if someone were a Jew by birth, if they were the, the physical offspring of Abraham, then, then Trypho, this Jew, thought that even if they were disobedient, even if they didn't believe, uh, even if uh, they were sinners— that they would still share and inherit the eternal kingdom. And we see the same sort of attitude uh, seems consistent with the Jews that Jesus encountered in his ministry. We see this play out in the book of Wisdom as well, one of the apocryphal books, uh, a book that is in uh, the Catholic Bible as well. It was written shortly before the birth of Christ. And in the book of Wisdom, chapter 12, verse 22, it states, So while chastening us, you scourge our enemies 10,000 times more. And so the Jews thought, it's very common, the, the Jews thought that God would deal more harshly with others. But Paul here, he is calling out their hypocritical stance, that they are judging others for particular actions, and they themselves are partaking of these sinful actions. And Paul says we can have no more. They, they are storing up God's wrath for themselves. And, and that wrath is going to be revealed uh, when, when God's righteous judgment. And so we continue here in, in verse 6. And Paul continues and he states, He will render to each one according to his works. That's God. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows 
no partiality. And so rather than God, uh, uh, Paul here is saying that, rather than God judging uh, based off of if you have the blood of Abraham or not, Paul tells them that God renders or God gives to each one according to his works, which is a near direct quote from Psalm 62, 12 and Proverbs 24, 12. So an Old Testament principle that Paul here is illustrating to the Jews themselves who, who, who were huge into uh, the Old Testament principles. And so for those who obey the word of God, Paul says they will receive eternal life. And for those who disobey the word of God, Paul clearly states that they will receive wrath and fury. It does not matter what race you are. It does not matter if you are a physical offspring of Abraham or not. If you are obedient to God and you follow his word, then you will receive eternal life. And if you are disobedient, then you will receive wrath and fury. And Paul, throughout his writings, he talks all about faith. Faith, 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 faith. He tells us in, in chapter 10 of Romans, that if you believe God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you'll be saved. Ephesians 2, verse 8, uh, a very well-known verse. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and not our own efforts or works. And so and, and we're not uh, disqualifying here this morning that, that we accept God's gift of grace through our faith. I, I love uh, the Christmas uh, analogy where uh, Christmas morning, uh, oftentimes a parent will, will give their child a gift. The parent is the one paying for the gift. The child, all the child has to do is they have to accept that free gift from their parent. It's free. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is accept that. And in a likewise manner, God, our heavenly father, has given us the free gift of eternal life through his grace. And so his grace is a free gift to us. And we accept this gift through our faith. And so it's true that works, that our works do not save us. It's also true that you cannot accept God's free gift of salvation with a dead faith. And the only way in which you can see people's faith at all is by their actions. It's really a dangerous uh, religious tendency that we see in Christianity uh, today in some Christian circles, uh, trying to separate, completely separate faith and works. There is no such thing as a living and active faith that does not uh, result in, in works as well. You cannot separate the two. And so it's God's grace that saves us. And we accept that grace through our faith. But if your faith is dead, if it's not backed up by works, then you will not be saved. You certainly will not be saved. And so when, when we go through this circle of reasoning here, Paul then says, if you are disobedient, if your works don't show up for it, then you will receive God's wrath and his fury. However, if through your works you show that you have a living and active faith in God, then you will accept that free gift of eternal salvation. And so Paul here, he is dishing it out to the Jews here in the first 11 verses of chapter 2 as he's saying, you guys, you, you are hypocritical. You're judging others for particular actions. You're partaking of those same actions. Uh, there, there, there's really nothing uh, too special for, for God uh, gives. God renders to each one according to his works, not whether or not you are the offspring of Abraham. 
And so let's uh, give the Jews uh, just a break here uh, for a minute. And we continue here in verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This uh, chunk of scripture here is a little wordy here. Uh, Paul can be a bit wordy in some of his letters. Uh, but Paul essentially is dividing the world into two different sections. He's dividing uh, the Jews who have uh, the, the physical written law provided to them as uh, God uh, divinely inspired uh, the writings of the Old Testament. And these Jews, they had access to these physical writings of the law. So he separates the Jews who had the written written law directly from God, and then the other nations who did not have the written law, the Gentiles. And for the group of people who did not have the written law, they still had, Paul demonstrates, they still had an innate knowledge of what was right and what was wrong through their conscience. This is the idea of universal morality, that everyone has a sense, a basic sense of what is right and what is wrong. No matter what culture you go to throughout the world, anybody will think that, that a, needless, uh, a needless that has no reason murder is wrong. It does not matter where you go. Everybody thinks that is wrong. There, there's this universal uh, code of morality that we all abide by. That, that, that is our conscience. That, that is telling us that A, something is right, or B, it is wrong. And so Paul, in the previous passage, verses 1 through 11, was demonstrating that the Jews could not exclude themselves from God's judgment just because they had the blood of Abraham. And likewise, in verses 12 through 16 here, Paul is demonstrating that the Gentiles could not exclude themselves from God's judgment just because they didn't have the written law. For we are a law to ourselves with our conscience. When our, when our conscience tells us that we should not do something, that is a law to us. And if we go ahead and do that thing that our conscience knows better than, then, then, then we have committed a wrong. We, we have committed a sin. And, and this innate uh, knowledge that this conscience is in each and every one of us, no matter what culture, no matter what race you go to throughout the entire world, we all have that universal uh, moral, code of morality where we all can decipher from right from wrong. And so if we continue here uh, in verse 17, Paul continues the, this argument, the, this case. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That, that, that was a big passage there to, to basically say that the Jews considered themselves as teachers. <laughs> These teachers, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, 
do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so Paul spent verses 12 through 16 making sure that the Gentiles are accountable as well. And he goes straight back uh, to the attention of the Jews. The Jews did not have it easy uh, in chapter 2 here. But the Jews, they, they had the written law. And, and there was a great sense of pride that these Jews had because of this. I mean, they, they reek of pride in the four Gospels. Jesus, he, he often has uh, many unfavorable uh, experiences with the Jew because of the pride that they have in their traditions and the law of Moses that they had access to. And so these Jews, they viewed themselves as teachers of the law. And Paul then asked, why do they do the very things that they teach not to do? Jews were very much under the idea, do as I say, not as I do. And Paul here, he's showing that is not sufficient parents out there. That, that, that does not work. Do as I say, not as I do. That, that, that's not a sufficient system. The Jews boasted in the law, and with the same law that they boasted in, they dishonored God by breaking it. It's not the hearers of the law who honor God, but it is the doers of the law who honor God. And the sick part of this in verse 24 is because of the Jews' hypocrisy, the Gentile world was blaspheming the name of their God. Yahweh, because of the unrighteous act of human beings, other human beings were blaspheming the name of God. That is sickening to see. We see that today as well. This last chunk of scripture here, we'll close out. Uh, verse 25, Paul writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, who will not, will not his circum, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written the, who have the written code and circumcision but, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Praise is not from man, but from God. Wow, I, I can only imagine what the Jews in the church would have been thinking when they would have heard this read aloud. Paul cuts right to the heart of the Jews. As if we were to go all the way back into Genesis uh, chapter 17, as God has already established a covenant with Abraham, God is continuing this covenant in chapter 17 of Genesis, and God told Abraham that he would be the father of multiple nations, and that his offspring would be kings. And better yet, his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan forever. They would have no end to this possession. It was a very, very impressive covenant that God was establishing with Abraham. 
And God certainly was going to keep his side of this agreement, of this contract, in essence, that God had with Abraham and his family. For Abraham and his family, their side of their agreement, they had to get circumcised. And this circumcision of the flesh, this served as a physical sign that they were aligned with God's covenant. And so the Jews of the day, when Paul is writing this, the Jews considered themselves special because they descended from Abraham and because they bore the mark of circumcision. Well, Paul now, he turns the tables on them, where now Jewishness is not a matter of race or circumcision of the foreskin. It is a matter of conduct, where once circumcision served as a physical sign, the physical representation that that you are in line with this covenant that God established with Abraham. That was once the sign. Now, the physical sign of this covenant is our conduct. Our conduct will be the sign of our relationship with God. Does our conduct line up with the word of God? Does it line up with the teachings of Christ? And if so, then in essence, you are the offspring of Abraham. You are co-heirs of that promise. You you will inherit the promised land forever. And so now both Jewish and Gentile believers are all on a level playing field as believers. And we have faith in God and we back that faith up with our works, with our conduct. Then we are grafted into the covenant that God established with Abraham. So we won't do uh, that this morning, uh, but a healthy practice uh, for you all, go home and and read through the covenants that God establishes with Abraham and his offspring in chapters 12 and the following chapters as well. And read yourself into those covenants. God is talking about you when he is describing the offspring of Abraham. Because Paul explains that no longer being a a, a physical descendant of Abraham. No longer is that the measure of whether or not you belong to the family of Abraham. No longer is is this physical sign of circumcision, which represents who is a part of this covenant and who is not. Now, it comes down to our conduct. Do we abide by the laws of God? Do we abide by the teachings of Jesus? And so one day, I firmly believe that we will inherit This land that God talks about in chapter 17 of Genesis, where God says his offspring will inherit it forever. I think we will inherit that land forever in God's coming kingdom. It's an actual piece of land. It won't just be floating in the heavens, but God created the earth to be inhabited. And we will inhabit the earth for all of eternity, the restored and renewed earth. And so praise God, praise God that we Gentiles have the same sort of access to this promise that God established with Abraham and his offspring. All we have to do is put our faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ, and we back up our faith with our works, with our content, with our conduct. And so when we put this chapter, uh, chapter two, uh, a, a fairly uh, large chapter here, a, a very wordy uh, chapter uh, presented 
from Paul. We had to put this chapter in the larger context of this letter. As again, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome as he wants to visit them and share the gospel message with them. Well, instead, for the present time being, he, he writes a letter about the gospel message. And outside of the introduction, Paul has barely mentioned the name of Jesus. Have you guys noticed that yet? In the past two weeks, we really not even really mentioned the name of Jesus. As Paul here, he is just laying the groundwork. I mentioned near the beginning of the message that Paul is seemingly making one big claim in this chapter. I think that one big claim is showing that everyone, no matter what race, whether you're Jew or Gentile, white or black, whatever, everyone is in need of justification. We need to be made right. For nobody has any excuse. Whether you are a Jew and a physical offspring of Abraham, you have no excuse. Whether you are a Gentile and you didn't have access to the written law, you have no excuse. Nobody has any excuse. We are all in need of justification. We all need to be made right before the eyes of God. You guys are smart cookies. You guys know that is when Christ enters the picture. But I think Paul does this beautifully. I think he beautifully lays the groundwork for this message of the gospel. Because right now, if we were to end this letter, we would all be doomed. Every single one of us would be doomed. We are all in need of justification. And so then Paul, then Paul gradually brings Jesus into the, the, this message of the gospel. Now, even though we all need justification, the good news is we all have access to justification. We all have access to forgiveness. But before we get to, to the, the, the good news, the, the, the gospel message, the, the, the fun part of this message, it needs to be extremely clear that no matter who you are, you are in need of God's grace and you are in need of God's justification. And so I praise God that this is not the end of this letter. But I also praise God that this is the beginning of the letter, that, that, that this was our story at one point in time. But thank goodness, God has a grand plan for all of us. And so as we continue throughout this letter, we see this message is not dark and gloomy, for otherwise, we wouldn't call it the gospel message, the good news. But, but there is good news to come. And the good news is the foundation of our faith that we have presented through Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, uh, we just give you thanks and glory and honor. Without you, Father, we are nothing. Without your Son, we deserve nothing more than death. Father, I just thank you for the writings of Paul. Thank you that he's clearly expressed that we have no excuse before you, Father. Father, I just pray that each and every one of us, we, we, we take this gospel message with all sincerity and that we accept this gospel message with a living and active faith and that you help us back that faith up with our works, with our conduct. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen.